For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has attained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up, and let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low, realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born. May all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another nor despise any being and any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another, even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child. So with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down during all one's waking hours. Let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion the luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. 
Our first woman ancestor, great teacher, Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher, Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher, Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher, Shogako Shunryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri. To the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paramita. When he is ready, Nyozan will introduce tonight's speaker. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, tonight, we're fortunate to have with us Levi Smith um, to do the, the talk this evening. Uh, Levi was one of the very, very earliest um, uh, people to turn up when I started offering Zazen uh, on the University of Chicago campus and has been consistent for these many years. Um, we had the opportunity through that um, and through a Dogen discussion group that lasted for many years to, to get to know each other and become good friends. And um, Levi is um, a painter. He was a uh, a uh, studio artist and uh, an art historian at the Art Institute. And uh, by the time I met him, had been reading uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind for, for many, many years. And so had uh, things to teach me about it. So thank you, Levi. Thank you, Nozan. Uh, can everybody hear me? Is this good volume? Yeah. Okay. Um, and thank you, Tigan, for the invitation. This is my first um, evening talk, um, and I'm sort of an early morning person, so I'll do the best I can, but I'm happy to be here. Um, the name of the talk is um, Gentleness and the Way of the Bodhisattva, and um, it's actually a revised version of a talk that I first gave a couple of years ago, actually just shortly after the release of a 2018 um, documentary film about Fred Rogers um, called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And Fred Rogers was the producer, writer, director, and principal actor in a TV show for children, if you don't know this, um, called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood that ran uh, internationally on, uh, ran nationally rather on PBS from 1968 to 2001. Um, and this, this film, um, really inspired me to uh, think more about his program and um, 
and its connection to the practice of um, compassion and of trying to help people and of um, possibly enacting on some of the behavior, at least, of being a bodhisattva. And I actually first mentioned this film in connection with a talk that was given um, by another member of, of the group um, about the three um, treasures, the three gems, Buddha, Dharma, and um, Sangha. And um, that talk focused on Sangha. And I thought, well, this is fascinating, you know, because Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood is really kind of the evocation of what we might consider um, a Sangha and of Sangha Kaya, the conditions under which a Sangha, sangha um, flourishes. Um, and so I wanted to talk about Mr. about Fred Rogers' ideas and his embodiment of community as enacted in that children's program and the Bodhisattva-like behavior of his life's life. And I chose this topic, um, and I kind of dithered about um, about, uh, and Nyozan is very familiar with, with with what I should talk about. And I had a, a totally different topic actually in mind at one point, but but I kept being pulled back to this this topic, which I hadn't um, really explored again um, because of what was going on, um, both the kind of trauma of uh, immediately before the inauguration and um, and the kind of total change that was apparent in the inauguration um, ceremonies as well. Uh, and it seemed to me that it was a propitious time um, to think about um, the way in which we can um, enact compassion in a world that is still very much um, struggling, um, that is still um, unsettled. And that, of course, if we really think about it, the world has always been that way. Um, What's fascinating is that Rogers' show debuted in 1968, which was arguably one of the most um, divisive, dramatic, uh, violent years um, in in American history post-Civil War, at least, and um, and a year that then echoes um, forward. Um, and certainly, I was uh, around it. I think most of us were. Um, uh, around and familiar with what was going on at that time. So in a sense, it's, it's a very interesting time to come back um, to Fred Rogers' program and to the ideas that really um, informed it. Um, I find this consonant with um, what I recognize as President Biden's attempts to um, restore and enact kind of common civic virtues of honesty, uh, respect, and, and decorum. And um, and I think those can be uh, easily seen uh, in the program that Fred Rogers uh, created. Um, Gentleness is in the title. And um, although I was first talking about Fred Rogers uh, the first time I gave the talk, really in terms of more of, of the Sangha, I, I really realized that I realized more and more that um, his behavior was something really quite extraordinary. And it, it, it seemed to um, be perhaps uh, his most subversive and, and in some ways, paradoxically, his, his most discomforting 
characteristic. Um, but the program itself was was very, very carefully designed. And and this I had not really paid attention to. I was too old for the show in the 60s. And, and I really didn't pay much attention to it. I was aware of some of the comedy that surrounded, you know, parodies of him. But I, I really wasn't aware of him until much, much later in my life. And really that film two years ago was the one that really cemented my my interest in him. And so I learned more about the program. And in fact, it was intended and carefully designed um, to be attractive to children. Um, it was in fact a radical statement about what children should be watching in the atmosphere of daytime children's television, which was mostly violent, um, sometimes very crude um, and very, very fast paced and noisy. Um, Fred Rogers liked to talk of it as a kind of bombardment um, and his program was designed almost exactly the opposite. Um, it was calming, calming and comforting. He followed a, a standardized, even ritualized um, program um, format, rather, welcoming their, the children into his home, uh, coming through a door, um, taking off um, his coat, putting on a sweater, putting on his shoes, um, his gym shoes, taking off his outside shoes um, and welcoming them and then saying goodbye at the end uh, so that there was almost a sense of a visit, a family visit that was taking place. He consciously spoke through the camera directly to them. And he said that he envisaged one child, not one particular child, but, but one child um, that was kind of the focus of his talk. And of course, through the, the lens, the, the camera, and through the medium of television, which is quite intimate, um, that became a way of talking directly to children. He used simple language. He spoke clearly and unheardly. And I could talk slower and I would be more like Mr. Rogers, but I'm not going to do it. Thank you. <laughs> not really my nature to do that. But, um, but there's something to be said for it. And there's something to be said for it in the terms of creating uh, a calming, calming situation. And that sense of gentleness and a very um, sensitive um, attention that he seemed to project towards children, I think are two characteristics that we want to think of in terms of compassion. You know, it's, we talk about compassion and we always talk about it as a kind of feeling and fellow feeling. But what do you do with it? How do you actually enact compassion? And I would argue that, that Fred Rogers found a way to do that and that his program was radical in the sense of trying to um, communicate something about being comfortable with feeling, about being able to express feeling, and most of all, being able to um, express um, one's sense of um, or feel one's sense of self-worth. His uh, gentleness really combined a kind of soft, vulnerable quality that you see. Uh, and it, it, so again, this is something that I, I think many adults found a little bit disturbing. It was just a little too kind of intimate, a little too kind of unguarded um, and a kind of guileless directness. Um, and it embraced a kind of cheerful humbleness and, and humility um, which, of course, humility is one of the virtues in, in Christian uh, philosophy. Um, and it's not congruent with weakness, which I think 
is something that a lot of people think, you know, if they're humiliated, they're, they're, they're humbled and they're, they are, um, they are um, brought low in a way. Um, but in Christianity as a virtue, it's actually seen as a spiritual strength. And that spiritual strength is one that directs one's attention away from oneself rather than being preoccupied with the self. Somebody who's humble is not. And this is contrasted directly with uh, narcissism. And so in the context of, of recent events, in the context of the last five years um, with Donald Trump, for example, we can think of um, humility as being a term that I don't think entered public discourse once in relationship to politics. And it was needed, let's put it um, that way. Um, What's interesting is this was anything but a naive man um, just kind of making it up as he went along. In fact, he had practiced, he had um, spent 10 years um, working as a producer and writer on various kinds of children's programs, both in the United States and in Canada. And it was informed as well by his Christian faith. He was raised in the Presbyterian church. He had a difficult childhood. He was a sickly child when he was in his, um, you know, late uh, pre-adolescent years, he, he gained a lot of weight uh, and was um, bullied in school. And as a result, he had a very strong inward life. Um, he was um, early attracted to music. And this, this kind of isolated background made him acutely sensitive to the issues of children being able to deal with their feelings and how they dealt with their feelings. And so the, the uh, Presbyterian church, he was raised in the Presbyterian church. He actually became uh, a Presbyterian minister in 1963 and was specifically ordained to work as not a televangelist, but someone who was reaching out to children through the medium of television. And this was kind of a radical idea. And it uh, was born at the same time that um, public television really began to take off. Uh, and so he found a place uh, in his native city of Pittsburgh um, that where he could produce the program. And he began producing it there. And within two years, it became so famous that it was picked up nationally um, at when PBS was actually formally organized in um, 19, well, beginning in 1968. He had another element to his background that also was um, important to his um, developing the show. And that was that he had been done. He had done graduate work in child psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. And the University of Pittsburgh, actually, for people who know something about child development, was a center, the center in the United States of interest in child development. It was run by a woman named Dr. Dr. Margaret McFarland. Um, who was particularly an expert on mother-child relations. And there are wonderful videos in the uh, documentary that you can see that were made with big, bulky, old video cameras to record babies crawling around on the floor and the mother's just observing them. These were some of the first experiments that were really done that um, way and um, also involved uh, at the university, not only McFarland, but also Dr. Benjamin Spock, and Eric Erickson and Barry Brazelton, who are three very major figures 
um, in the study and uh, of raising children. And from both really came his, um, from both, well, from three really, from this experience with what television, children's television was and wasn't, with the experience of the church and his strong sense of Christian faith. And then finally with the training in psychology that continued actually for 30 years. He had a very strong relationship with Margaret McFarland. And she was an advisor on his program, critiqued his scripts. He would bring them to her and go over them with her. And again, in the documentary, you'll see her talking to him about how um, in the television relationship, it really is real to the children and how the puppets that he used, which were of course used in child psychology, group therapy and the like with children um, were a crucial element um, in his program. And I'll talk more about that later. He, his central conviction was that um, at the center of many persons struggles with lives, like with their life is the fear or conviction uh, first learned as a child, that they're not special, um, that they're not good enough. And from this understanding came perhaps his most famous pronouncement as Mr. Rogers, which was delivered um, at the end of each show. And he would look at, look at through the camera at the individual and say, you've made this day a special day by just you being you. There's no person in the whole world like you. And I like you just the way you are. I think, you know, if we stop and think about this for a moment, it sounds cliche, it sounds corny, and probably many of you have heard this, um, but it's a statement that's incredibly powerful and it's incredibly important. And it's one that in the face of our culture, I think, um, is a corrective to the way in which we emphasize a kind of hyper-individuated individuality, which yet still has to conform to all sorts of models that are being promoted by advertising, being promoted by the mass media, um, often with really um, retrograde um, representations or understandings of gender and of uh, issues of what it would mean to really be a true individual. And for, for Mr. Rogers, being a true individual began with simply being able to accept yourself and accept yourself as literally being co-equal to, to everybody else. And I think this, this way of, of um, thinking about how to connect to people is something that, that we try and think about doing um, in, um, in our work as um, Zen Buddhists who are concerned to embody um, a bodhisattva and a bodhisattva way of life. What's particularly remarkable about Fred Rogers is, and this was a big question, you know, that probably all of us had, is he really like that? Can, can he really be like that when he's not on the show? I mean, it's one thing when you're talking to kids, you know, and you're talking at the rate of like five words, you know, a second or something, but, but, uh, but it's different when you think about people. And there's a wonderful, wonderful interview with um, Yo-Yo Ma, who was an early friend of his, who he had on his program very early on. And, uh, you know, Ma played a partita or something. But before that, he before he did that, the first thing Mr. Rogers did was um, he, he put his face 
Yo-Yo Ma said about four inches from Yo-Yo Ma's. And he said, I'm so happy to meet you. (laughs) Yo-Yo Ma was just like going to jump out of his chair. You know, it was just shocking. Um, But he came to realize that um, this was, and I think he realized pretty quickly that, um, that this was part of Mr. Rogers um, persona uh, that he broke through like immediately. He, He literally broke through. He had no, in a sense, you could regard him as being someone who had sing and all that, or you could see a performance artist who uh, Levi, we're having trouble with the sound. Who? Um, yeah, Levi, you might try turning your video off, and that should improve your sound quality. You were cutting out there for a while. Levi, now you're muted. Yeah, sorry. Yep. Okay. I apologize for that. No problem. A uh, little problem with the internet here, uh, but it's fixed. Um, so, the, anyways, I was going to say that um, another aspect of Mr. Rogers' work is his courageousness in the face of cultural, you know, cultural disbelief in some cases. He was very popular with parents of young children, starting in Pittsburgh, um, where his show uh, began. But he was uh, really subject to some cruel caricatures of, um, of, um, by, by famous comedians, actually, and some that he didn't regard as so cruel um, and as more good-natured. Um, outside his memorial service in Pittsburgh, though, in 2003, fundamentalist Christians protested him as a minion of Satan who they believed had corrupted children because he told them they were fine. They were the way they were. So, um, so he suffered a kind of persecution as well. That was kind of unbelievable, but um, not, I don't think directed at him while he was alive. Um, Anyways, perhaps um, someday he'll be recognized as a Christian saint, but I'd like to also propose him as, as a sort of a model for, bodhisattvic behavior and for making clear that all of us, and this is a profound belief of his, all of us deep inside have our childhood with us. We have the child we were then. It's still, that person is still inside us. That person still has issues that can be addressed and that are being worked out, that we are working out through our entire uh, lives. So I I would like to say that in Buddhist terms, his gentleness um, can be understood as really solidly grounded in an awareness of the equality of all human beings and the importance of respect and sensitivity in our dealings with them. That gentleness and a kind of respectful attention are the way in which we can begin to enact compassion with others. And that without those two aspects of gentleness and of respectful attention, it's very difficult. It may be necessary, it may work in some ways, in some situations, but I think the overwhelming 
a majority of instances, this is the way to establish um, a relationship. Uh, there's wonderful footage also of him coming out on stage. He did a lot of presentations where he showed up and talked to kids. And these children are, are sitting there and, um, and they just stare at him. You know, they just stare at him for a while. And then they start to ask questions. And he took the questions very seriously. Um, there's a famous one about a, a little boy. And it's total silence, you know, for like five minutes while they're staring at him. And he's just sitting there in a chair. And the little boy says, um, my mother put the doggy in the wash, the toy doggy in the washing machine and its tail fell off. And he said, well, that happens sometimes to toys and the tail can fall off and the ear can fall off, but it never happens to human beings. He said, your ears can't fall off. Your nose can't fall off. And the little boy went, and your legs can't fall off, you know? And then apparently the water was, the, the silence was broken. Kids started asking all these questions and, and he said, and they were really good questions. You know, they were, sta- they were questions that really got at things that were central um, to their concerns. So this idea of respect and sensitivity um, is something that can be, um, that certainly is from in, found in Christian teachings, but it can also be extended by Buddhism um, to all sentient, of course, beings, and then to even insentient beings as well. And in fact, to all uh, living things. And I, how am I doing for time? I don't want to go too, too long, but do I have another, what, 15 minutes or so? Is that right, Tiger? Or where do you want me to? Be good to have some time for discussion. So maybe, yeah, sure. uh, you know, 10 minutes, maybe. Okay, fine. Um, So I'm arguing that gentleness becomes fundamental. And Suzuki Roshi, to to turn to uh, a wonderful teacher, um, advised his, and I think this this works along this line too, advised his erstwhile students not to become obsessed. He said, quote, strictly speaking, any effort we make is not good for our practice because it creates waves in our mind. It is impossible, however, to attain absolute calmness of our mind without any effort. We must make some effort but we must forget ourselves in the effort we make. I think he's responding here to, you know, the enthusiasm and sometimes aggression that Western students often display in their pursuit of a goal. You know, we're all goal oriented. This is the West. We want progress. We want to get somewhere. Um, And so it can be maybe to meditate more effectively, whatever that means, or to um, become enlightened, whatever that is. Jack Kornfield writes, um, In the end, spiritual life is not a process of seeking or gaining some extraordinary condition or powers or special powers. In fact, such seeking can take us away from ourselves and from awakening. If we are not careful, we can easily find that the great failures of our modern society, its ambitions, materialism, and individual isolation are repeated in our spiritual life. In Zen mind, uh, beginner's mind, Suzuki describes how to achieve this this calmness and the time it may take. He says, and this is a famous quote, but building character is like making bread. You have to make it little by little, step by step, and moderate temperature is needed. And I might add that, you know, with bread, you also let it rest. You have to knead it, and then you let it rest. You knead it, you let it rest, right? Um, 
Building relationships, I would argue, is like this as well. We need to pay respectful attention, which allows a space for a relationship to grow. And that sitting and allowing the children to come to him, to speak to him, to speak first, instead of, okay, kids, what do you want to know? Kind of thing, you know, is, um, I think, uh, characteristic of what Suzuki is talking about here as well, that we have to give ourselves, we have to speak to ourselves, not in that commanding voice, but with silence, with listening instead. And Zazen. In Buddhism, a main embodiment of respect is bowing. And this respect is grounded in our recognition, really, of the omnipresence of the Buddha. The Buddha is everywhere, and we recognize that by bowing. And Suzuki again said, in your big mind, everything has the same value. And big mind, of course, is juxtaposed with small mind, which is our little everyday mind. Big mind is Buddha. Everything is Buddha himself. In your practice, you should accept everything as it is giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. When everything exists within your big mind, all dualistic relationships drop away. Sometimes the disciple bows to the master. Sometimes the master bows to the disciple. Sometimes we may bow to dogs and cats. And I'm bowing to my cat who's making that noise if you heard a cat yelling. And here's a short story about bowing. Um, when I was an undergraduate student, I worked part-time at the local library in Burlington, Vermont, checking out and shelving books. It was a very friendly place. Um, one of the librarians who was a child's li- children librarian had her office down in the lower level of the library, which was basement, basically. And that's where there was a lot of um, shelving. And my job was to come in and, and um, shelve books. And my partner was a young man. Um, who had Down syndrome and he was a very sweet person and he was very good at shelving. Um, And one day as I came around the corner, I saw him at the far end of the aisle and he turned to this little dog that was the pet of the children's librarian who would rush around, you know, the basement, right? And he was rushing past and he bowed slightly and he said, excuse me, (laughs) had his arms full of books. And, uh, much later when I read Suzuki, I just flashed back to this wonderful young man and that sense of um, greeting the moment, you know, seeing the Buddha in this stupid little Russian running dog that was, was embodying the spirit of, uh, you know, joy in a way uh, among all these books that were going back into storage. Um, so I want to turn from talking about um, from quoting Suzuki, basically, to talking about um, the idea of a socially engaged practice, um, which involves us in this whole notion um, of how do we interact with people as in as agents of enlightenment. Um, and many people, I think, struggle, I know I do, with the struggle in how to link what I understand as my private practice to some tangible effect in the world. You know, how do we then enact it? And no one has been more involved with enacting and articulating uh, the challenge of doing so that than the Vietnamese Buddhist master, Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, he trained from childhood as a Buddhist monk in Vietnam in the midst of war, um, continuous war, 
Um, he had family that was slaughtered, part of his village. Uh, he had dreadful experiences. Uh, and as a young man, he decided that his approach to practice had to be struggling with the overwhelming immediacy and, and suffering of the war in some way. And he um, developed an approach which he has described in very many ways in hundreds, well, over a hundred books uh, as being peace, um, the development of embodying peace. Um, and it is an approach that necessitates the idea of cultivating a practice founded in the embrace of peacefulness. In order for us to be peaceful, he understands immediately and teaches as a kind of foundation, we must become very skillful at managing, uh, recognizing and managing our anger. And there's a wonderful story that he tells, and I'll just summarize it because I don't have a whole lot of time, but I, but it's a story about um, a woman who practiced the invocation of Buddha Amitabha's name and um, she's a very tough person and she's very dedicated and she practices this with chanting three hours, three times or one hour, three times a day. And with bringing her, uh, inviting the bell to sound. Um, and although he says um, she'd been doing this for 10 years, her personality had not changed. She was still quite mean shouting at people all the time. Uh, and a friend wanted to teach her a lesson. And so he stands outside her house and when she's lighting the incense and inviting the bell and beginning her chant, he starts shouting her name, Mrs. Wen, Mrs. Wen. And he keeps doing this for 10 minutes. And she finally, um, after struggling with her anger, which she says, I must overcome this, I must overcome this, like she can't overcome. So she goes and she says, um, what are you doing calling my name? And he says, well, I just called your name for 10 minutes and you're very angry. You've been calling the Buddha's name for 10 years. Think how angry you must be right now. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, I think, story about the way in which anger wells up in us at the most inopportune moments. It takes us away. We forget our practice. We forget our training. We forget the whole point of what we're doing. And worst of all, we're presented with an opportunity. This is a gate. This is a dharma gate. Here we are. We're pissed off. What are we going to do? <laughs> what is the answer? And most of the time, we probably fail. You know? And then we pick ourselves up and we go on. In 1961, Thich Nhat Hanh traveled to the United States to teach comparative religion at Princeton University. And the following year, he went on to teach and research Buddhism at Columbia University. At that time, he asked a friend to introduce him to an American bodhisattva. And the friend had been, didn't have any idea of who to introduce him to. He came back in 66 uh, after receiving transmission in Vietnam. And he traveled once more to the U.S. and to Europe, um, pledging the case for peace in the war. Um, as a result of this mission, he was exiled from Vietnam and he wasn't allowed back for, for 40 years. Um, and um, it was during this trip though, that he met Dr. Martin Luther King. And King, um, who had won the Nobel Prize two years earlier, was so impressed by Thich Nhat Hanh that he nominated him for the Nobel Prize in 1967. At the World Bank headquarters in Washington, D.C. in 2013, Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of his close friendship with Dr. Martin Luther King and their shared dream of building a beloved community through the practice of nonviolence. 
And that was the second title I was going to add to my paper, um, The Beloved Community, uh, because Sangha is very much what that's about. But he wrote, he said, King said, there are certain things we can say about this method that seeks justice without violence. And this is nonviolence, of course, protest. It does not seek to defeat or humiliate the opponent, but to win his friendship and understand it. The ultimate end of violence is to defeat the opponent. The ultimate end of nonviolence is to win the friendship of the opponent. It is necessary to boycott sometimes, but the nonviolent resistor realizes that boycott is never an end within itself, but merely a means to awaken a sense of shame within the oppressor, that the end is reconciliation, the end is redemption. And so the aftermath of violence is bitterness. The aftermath of nonviolence is a creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. Well, no Nobel Prize was awarded in 1967. The following year, Fred Rogers' program went national, seeking to create a television community of peace among children. And the year after that, Rogers testified before the Senate subcommittee on communications in support of a bill to fund the new PBS, the second year of public broadcasting for another year into the tune of $20 million. That was up $9 million from the year before. And he, the person who was chairing the committee was John Pastor, who was a Senator from Rhode Island, um, known for being um, actually enlightened in some ways, but a crusty character. And he had had two weeks, two days rather of testimony from people who were reading statements. And he had said, I don't want to hear any more. Read, re, you, I don't want you to read any more written statements. I will read them myself, but I, I don't want to. You have to summarize what you have to say. And and Fred Rogers is told um, and that and he says, well, I accept. OK, you've said you're going to read them and trust is important. So I I trust that you will. And Pastor goes, well, will it make you happy to read it? And and Rogers responds in the most incredible, unthreatening way with this this meek kind of statement of, no, I'd just like to talk about it uh, and summarize. And he goes on to talk about it very, very eloquently. And in the video, which you can watch on mrrogers.org, uh, um, I guess it is, um, you can see this man who had been all kind of, I'm Mr. Senator, kind of bossing people around, just relax and relax and relax. And finally, you know, he's like literally like this. I mean, he's just kind of melted over his podium. And he goes, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Looks like you got your $20 million like that. Uh, and so this is a beautiful example. It's one of the greatest examples I've ever seen of how meekness of just really trying to reach a person um, through a common humanity can can melt um, opposition and have it literally go away. Anyways, I want to conclude so we can talk about this um, Mr. Rogers said, um, and he was often called upon at, on the occasion of national tragedies, uh, 9-11, for example, to make a statement. Um, and one of the ones that he liked to, to stress was uh, when he was a boy, he said, and I would see scary things in the news. My mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And addressing um, his fellow television professionals, when he was awarded the, inducted into the Television Hall of Fame in 19, 
uh, 99, he said, among other things, fame is a four letter word like tape or Zoom or face or pain or life or love. What ultimately matters is what we do with it. And he said, I feel those of us in television are chosen to be servants. I think this idea of servant uh, servitude is something that is certainly out of his Christian background, but it's something that we also actually vow as bodhisattvas to serve all living creatures, <laughs> to have all the world enlightened before we um, achieve that or depart with that. And that idea of, of, of being of service is something that I think is uh, part of the reason that we do what we do. And I think that Mr. Rogers' example of this marvelous explore, uh, expression of compassion is a, the fundamental connection to doing so. So thanks for listening. And I look forward to any comments you have to make, um, would like to make, um, questions you have. Thank you. So thank you so much, Levi. Uh, comments, questions, thank you, responses, Kevin. please feel free. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Is that Christopher? Yes. Hello, thank yes. you. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, Welcome. Thank you. I was wondering, uh, it sounds like the film had a, had a profound effect upon you. Have you seen the subsequent film about Fred Rogers called Which one? The Tom Hanks one? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen it, um, and I liked it, and I thought it was kind of a tour de force of acting. It's very interesting. Um, and he talked about his own experience, uh, somewhat like Yo-Yo Ma's, of, of um, having to really downshift um, in terms of the kind of projection that one does um, and, and still himself um, to be able to approach the manner that Fred Rogers embodied. I mean, he, it really was Fred Rogers. And I thought that was very revealing. Um, the, the movie is fascinating because of course it hinges on this whole kind of personal drama. It's like, kind of, it's got all the tropes of, of uh, that one expects of kind of Hollywood movies um, in terms of the person that comes and kind of gets healed by him. Um, it's exaggerated, but certainly the reporter life was, was changed actually. Um, maybe not in quite the way that it's represented in the movies, but but um, but there are people who really, um, and I think Yo-Yo Ma was one, uh, were radically affected by by his presence and by his um, interaction with them. Yeah, I think it's a great thing that came out. It it had the involvement of um, his heirs and particularly his wife um, Joanne, who died actually uh, eleven days ago at the age of 92. Um, she was a concert pianist. They had been married at his death at, for 51 years. Um, 
high school, well, college sweetheart. And um, she's a wonderful corrective to um, kind of the, the way Mr. Rogers comes across in that she's very direct and, and very, and, and talks, talks about the other side of Mr. Rogers um, and mostly his, his um, um, uncertainty actually, and his striving, um, ceaseless striving to embody and create what he thought was needed. Um, and so service was something that was absolutely central to him. I think the two, the two films might make a lovely double feature. Yeah, they, they would. And, and a, an occasion for, for thinking about how, well, it's, it's a kind of an education on documentary film versus fictional film. Um, both about the same person and how um, the tropes then start to kind of stand out in both um, genre, you know, um, and you start to see, oh, yeah, well, in a document, you kind of got to do that. And isn't it great that they had this footage? Um, and in the movie, you can do whatever you want. Uh, and so it's reconstructed in a way that corresponds to a different form of narrative. I mean, they're both narratives, but. Um, Absolutely. I think they both have their strengths. Yeah, so do I. So do I. Absolutely. And in fact, um, a talk that I've been working on now for a while um, is about um, Robert Bresson, um, the great film, uh, French film director. And um, and um, well, I'm forgetting his first name, Kieslowski, the great Polish director, both of whom were very philosophical filmmakers and very aware of um, the strangeness of film in making everything visual. Everything is visual in film, right? And it's performance too. But but you can't do philosophy. You can't do um, certain ways of, of interacting with people. We're talking on through Zoom, right? You know, it's a good example of kind of limitations of it. Um, that um, they, they really tr- strove to create techniques to work around that and get at the inner life of people. Bresson did it by basically um, picking people who weren't actors and working with them, creating a very strange effect. And, and Kieslowski did it by using very, very good actors, um, but then through the medium of film, um, creating this distancing where you start to see um, certain things um, enacted that reveal that intensely revealing of the interior life of uh, the person being shown. So. Well, well, we're still on mute. I, I might. Yes, David. Anything. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, for that talk. Um, I love um, the way that, uh, you know, being an American Buddhist opens up sort of lines inside the Western European tradition and, and, and sheds interesting light on, on the aspects of it that, that I want to value and, and, and be part of and, and the, way that, the way that they interact with, with Buddhist ideals. So, so I was thinking about this, this word gentleness. Mm-hmm. Um, Really interesting word, right? That, you know, yeah. in the Middle Ages, it, you know, it comes from that, the theory of courtly love and the gentle heart, that, that, that mm-hmm. idea. 
mm-hmm. uh, with the tale of knighthood, you know, the, the sonnets of Dante talk that way. And then gentleman, really interesting word because it, it, you know, earlier it has that thought of, you know, somebody who is, who is rich and privileged and lords it over every, everybody. But then it becomes, then it changes, but it still has that idea of not just being nice and sweet and, you know, maybe weak, but, but, a, but a, a sense of delicate refinement of manners, mm-hmm. um, something like that. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's really interesting that you, that you picked that word to describe uh, Mr. Rogers and, and that you link that with Bodhisattva compassion. I'd just like to hear more than about, you know, about that word gentleness for, for you. Like if it picked out something special, you know, uh, uh, different from, say, compassion or other words that you might have used. It's such a, it's such a rich word. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, gentleness seems to me to describe um, more um, uh, a kind of behavior, um, inactive behavior, like you handle something that's fragile gently, right? Um you approach something with a kind of uh, delicacy. Um, compassion, to me, remains a more mysterious word. It's something that feels more interior to me. One mm-hmm. feels compassion. Uh, but then what does one do with it? You know, does one, it's not a, na- it does, does one, um, it's not a verb, you know, does one compassion, <laughs> you know, and we can make it into that. We can say, well, it's about co-feeling. It's kind of connected with the feeling of, of the other person, but it goes way beyond that, I think. And um, so with Mr. Rogers, what I was struck was the way in which um, he, and you see this really with the children, but with older people too, you know, um, he is preternaturally responsive to the person that he's engaged with. He's like fully engaged with the person. And that, that I think is scary actually to some adults is I think what Yo-Yo Ma, who's, you know, public figure and he's a very um, robust personality, you know, he's a, a very balanced person in a lot of ways, but he was thrown off by that, you know, and I think we, we all are that, that kind of, um, as I said before, kind of breaking through and, but, but not breaking through, it's kind of reaching through in a very un, you know, in a very kind of calculated way, I suppose, but it's not calculated. Uh, so, so I understand your, your question very much. And I think it's a great one. And I couldn't figure out what other word, I think it's the word that came closest to what, um, you know, I wanted to say, and it combined, I, I beginning at the beginning of the lecture, I mentioned a kind of respectful attention. You know, it's not just attention. It's like respectful. And how is it respectful? What is it respectful of? Well, it's respectful of the way in which the person is either receiving it or, um, or, or how they're receiving it, I guess, would be a way I could talk about it. And maybe this is projection on my part, but but I think when you see the documentary and you see his interaction with those um, with people, um, it's really quite stunning. There's one where he's uh, he had a show that failed miserably. Um, that was after he finished his, you know, the run of of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and then it was put on it was put on replay. You know, and there are like 600 episodes or something, so it's like two years worth of programs. And he, anyways, he had an adult program, and he interviews a, a famous classic, um, a concert pianist, 
and a classical concert pianist. pianist. And I don't remember the, the pianist's name, but, um, you know, Rogers wrote something like 600, 500, 600 songs. And he was a skilled pianist. He wasn't as good as wife, but he was really skilled and, uh, and knew about music. And he's talking and he says to the guy, do you ever, and he's the, the guy sitting at this baby grand, you know, and he said, or concert grand actually. And he says, do you ever think of this as a space? This piano is a space, like a room where you can go in and kind of search. Around. And the guy looks at him like, what? You know? And then he says, and he starts playing, I think it's the Moonlight Sonata or something. And he says, is this, what kind of space is this like? I don't think this is like any space. This is like a, a flower or a child. And I thought that's great. That's an amazing interaction between these two. Is it a space? No, the piano is a machine that produces the music with the pianist that is a creation that is temporal, it's ephemeral, it's modulating all the time. It's, it's you know, it's, it's like a flower or like a child, the kind of condensed version of them, right? You can have the whole life in just a piece of music. So that is an idea that I don't think would ever have been pulled out of that pianist unless, except for the fact that Mr. Rogers floated his idea for him. It was, it's a safe place, you know, it's where he could, and he says this in the movie, it's where he could express himself. It's where he could get his feelings out in a piano with music. And for this other pianist, it's actually more about creating a living thing a responsive living thing that's dazzling. You know, it's it's created by him, but it's also got its own kind of life. It can be varied infinitely in all these little ways. So the, the, the show included um, jazz piano. I recently saw a YouTube program about it, how um, the, the, the music was actually different every episode. And I remember that aspect of it. And it's, right. it's not music for children. It's no. advanced really interesting jazz piano and he and mr rogers specifically had the thought that he didn't want kids to get kids music he wanted them to be exposed to something interesting and, and um intricate yeah no he he made a point of having all sorts of different artists come on his show and he talked to them as a, as adults about their craft in very simple language um but but in a way that that made offered the possibility, and I'm not an expert on them. I've watched a few of them, but I haven't watched anywhere near, you know, the entire series, which would be um, interesting to do. <laughs> um, but I just, you know, I haven't had the time to really get into it that much. But it, it was a very unusual program. Um, and it, you know, people were, PBS was fascinating because it had that show and it had Sesame Street. And Sesame Street was a very different kettle of fish. Um, and in fact, had a lot of aspects that I think Mr. Rogers disliked. So, but at least it didn't have the kind of violence, overt violence that, well, sometimes it even had that. Anyways, yes, any other comments? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Levi. You know, I, I can't help but, you know, thank you very much. I really appreciate your consideration of that. I did see the movie and I did watch it as a child, but also my family was very traumatized by the Vietnam War, as was mm -hmm. my neighborhood. We had 
casualties in the neighborhood and so forth. And violence was the backdrop. And many of the families were led by uh, men and women who really just got out of World War II. Mm-hmm. And so on some level, the program stood in grand contrast to the anxiety that certainly I experienced as a child and my expectation that I was going to be uh, brought into the conflict that's in yeah. six years, five years, four years. It was yeah. a timeline before Selective Service pulled me in. And so I always, and you mentioned Vietnam, so I've always wondered about the program and the context, the cultural context of the extraordinary violence that we were witnessing every night in the news and well, in our households. Yeah, he, he does deal with um, that on the program. And in fact, one of the earliest show well, within a year, um, no, actually, it's I think it's in the first, one of the first shows that he does in 68, he deals with the concept of war um, in his fantasy land. One of the things I didn't mention about the show is it has a tripartite set. There's the yard, kind of front yard, short area with an entrance to the house where he can meet his neighbors. There's the house itself, which has kind of a living room, kitchen combination space. And then there's a trolley that goes from the house and the camera camera does its dissolvey kind of thing. And you end up uh, in the land of uh, make-believe. And um, in that land, the, the Mr. Rogers never appears, but he voices all the puppets. So it's like a kind of interior neighborhood of Mr. Rogers' mind. You could call it that for one in one kind of sense, but it's also a place where the puppets act out dramas about death, about violence, and about their fear of it or their emotions concerning it. And so at that distance, he's able to um, talk about these issues. And this is classic child psychology. You know, this is the way, this is what puppets and dolls and stuff are used for because children can relate to the, the toy in a way that's not as um, violating as themselves um, or for the adult as well. So, so he, he was very aware of, of that. He was extremely concerned um, about about the violence. And when Robert Kennedy died, he did an extraordinary show, which is mentioned on the documentary where um, that actually does again, take place um, in the land of, of make belief where um, a, a, I think it's a pussy cat. I mean, there were these different characters. There was King Friday, the 13th, the last benevolent dictator, you know, there was uh, queen Elaine or, or lady Elaine, who was a, kind of a witch um, there was um, Daniel the Lion, who was kind of equal parts timid and equal parts parts fierce. And there was Exy Owl, who was uh, sort of an um, infinitely curious kind of interested person, you know, adolescent sort of character. And these characters would, would play out these different things anyways. One of them um, has, the, has, and I think maybe it's, it's um, Daniel, but he has this woman who's one of the assistants on the program blow up a balloon and let out the air and blow up the balloon and let out the air. And, and then he says, what's assassination. And it's about the, the killing of Robert Kennedy, which he addresses in this program. And it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's really amazing how it's done through the medium of this puppet to talk about um, what defining what assassination is, 
you know, straightforwardly. Uh, and then talking about how, um, and the, the, the character is concerned that they're going to get hurt. And they say, no, no, we're going to keep you safe. And so another thing that Rogers believed in was the importance of parents ensuring their children that they would take care of them. They don't have to be responsible. You know, the parent is the one who will deal with this and will make sure that their child is safe. So that was a message that was um, spelled out over and over again in his show. Um, and that was encouraging, of course, if you were a parent who was watching a show with a child. Um, and I think a lot of parents did, in fact. Um, you were able to, to learn something from that as well. Levi, thank you very much. This has been really a wonderful talk, and uh, uh, I think it's time to kind of wrap up formally, so maybe we'll have our uh, closing four bodhisattva vows, vows which, you know, again, your talk really illuminated a lot about what bodhisattva is, and then we'll have some time after for announcements and then afterwards informally for those who can stay just to uh, chat some more, so... Thank you so much, Levi. Uh, Wade, if you could uh, put up the four, what he said fast. Yes, one moment. I'll put those on the screen for anyone who wants them. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it.